We're going to be learning in Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim HaLevi, the only piece in Hulchus Toen V'nitan. This is Perakei Halacha Beis. And in this piece, Rab Chaim deals with the view of the Rambam that there is no Shvua de Oraisa, a Torah vow, in a dispute concerning land. So even though at this point the person wants money, since the dispute began over land, so according to the Rambam, there is no Torah vow because it has to do with land. And the Ravid disagrees. He says that at this point, it's a dispute over money, so there is a Torah vow. So Rab Chaim's going to explain two aspects of that. And the second point that he makes is a very fundamental point that there's a difference between when someone damages property versus when they damage someone else. So when someone damages property, they have to compensate the loss of value as opposed to damages to someone else physically. The Torah said that they have to pay for the fact that they damage them, not for the loss of value. So that's a very key conceptual point, and as we'll see afterwards, there's a good amount of debate over that. The context for this halacha in the Rambam is that there are two types of vows in halacha. There's the Oraisa Torah vows, and there's Drabanan vows. Now, a Torah vow only comes about in a specific case, which is Modeb Miktsas. So if someone says, you owe me $100, and the other guy says, I only owe you 50 so he agrees that he owes 50 but he denies 50 so there, there's a Torah vow. But if he totally denies the whole thing, he says, I owe you nothing, so that's only a rabbinic vow. Now, the Rambam is adding that a Torah vow is only on traditional money. So the guy says, you owe me $100, and the other guy denies half of it. But if it's on other things like land or slaves, so then there is no Torah vow on a claim of land. And slaves are compared to land, so there would be no Deoraisa vow for land or for slaves. So to illustrate this, the Rambam says, If someone digs in his friend's field a pit or trenches or a cave, and he damaged it. So for that damage, he would have to pay because he dug big holes in his friend's property. So, whether the friend says, you dug a hole in my land and he denies the whole thing, or the friend says, you dug two holes in my land and he denies one of them, but he agrees that he dug one hole. So, that's a moda bemiktsas. He denies part and agrees to part. Or one witness testifies that he dug a hole and he denies the witness's testimony. So in all three of those cases, the Rambam rules that it's only a rabbinic shvua. It is not a doraisa shvua. Now, even though in the middle case, the guy said, you dug two holes in my land and the other one agreed that he dug one hole, but he denied the other one. So that's a moda b'miktsas. So it should be a Deoraisa vow, but since the issue involves land, so the Rambam rules that there can never be a Deoraisa Shvua on an issue that involves a dispute of land. So the Ravid disagrees, and he says, The Rambam is correct in the case where the person wanted the guy who dug the hole to fill in the hole and smooth out the land. 
So now the Rambam is correct that the debate hinges over an issue of land, so there is no Deoraisa vow. Because the owner is demanding that the other guy fill in two holes, and that guy is insisting that he only dug one hole, so he's agreeing to fill in one hole, but he's denying the other one. So that's a dispute over land, so that is not a Deoraisa vow. But says the Raivet, Avalim Tovol Shalim Pachso, but if the owner of the land wants him to pay, so he doesn't want him to fill in the hole. He wants him to pay the value of the damages. So then that's like any claim of money. So according to the Ravid, that is a Torah vow. Even though the case began with a claim over land, but the real claim of the owner is you owe me the money of the damages for two holes. And the other person is insisting that he only owes him half that money. So according to the Ravid, even though the dispute began over land, but now it's a regular financial monetary dispute. So it's a regular case of moda b'miktsas and the vow is the oraisa. And the Ravid brings a proof to his view that even if the debate begins over land, but once it translates into a financial dispute, it's considered a regular monetary debate. From the case of There is a case in the Mishnah where a person says, you damaged me physically in two places, and the other person agrees that he damaged him in one place, but he denies the other one. So again, this is a dispute that began involving a person, and according to the Raivid, all people are compared to land, not only slaves. So this seems to be a secondary issue between the Rambam and the Raivid. The Rambam only compares slaves to land. The Raivid compares everybody to land. So according to the Raivid, why is there a Torah vow of Modeb Miktsas in a case involving a dispute over physical damages since a person is compared to land? So that's the same as a dispute over land. So there should be no Torah vow. So says the Raivid, we see from here, like he's saying, that once the debate translates into a financial dispute, so the guy is insisting that he wants to be paid for the damages, even though it began on a person's body or it began on land, but now it's considered a financial dispute. So there is a Torah vow. So the Ravid brings a proof from the case of physical damages where the person who was damaged says that he was damaged in two places and the other one agrees that he damaged him in one but denies another damage. So that's considered modeb emiktas. It has a Torah vow. So the same is true in this case of land, that if the owner says you dug two holes and I want you to pay the full value of those damages and the other guy says I only dug one hole, so that is a Torah vow according to the Ravid. So that's the debate between the Rambam and the Ravid, a dispute which begins over land but is now an issue of money. Is that a Torah vow or not? Now, the Ksosachoshen in Simon Sadi Hay discusses this issue, and Rab Chaim's going to react to his discussion. So the Ksos points out that the question the Ravid asks on the Rambam from the case of physical damages could be answered based on the Ran. So even if the Rambam agrees that everybody, not just slaves, is compared to land, so the Rambam would agree that physical damages does not have a Torah vow, and that's not clear on that point, but even if we assume the Rambam agrees, 
agrees with the Raivid on that detail, still there is an answer to the Raivid's question. The Raivid asks that the Mishnah says that even if the dispute began over physical damage, it's now a case of Moda B'Miktsas. But the Ran in his commentary explains that the Mishnah is not saying this is an actual De'oraisa Shvua. It means that it's a Drabanan vow, it's like a Moda B'Miktsas. And that's the view of Rabbi Yehuda that some vows are similar to Moda B'Miktsas, even though they don't meet the entire criteria. So in this case also, the Raivid's assuming this is a Do'oraisa Shvua, but the Ran suggests that it could just be a Drabanan Shvua, and that would answer the view of the Rambam. And that's the way Rabbi Yehuda says it in these cases. So the same is true in this case, that even though the debate began over physical damages over a person, so there's no Torah vow, but according to Rabbi Yehuda, it's enough like a Moda B'Miktsas that there is a vow. So according to this approach, we should not take this halacha too literally and extrapolate from here that there's a motive b'miktsas even on cases involving land because in fact, according to that halacha, it's enough like a motive b'miktsas that there is a vow. So that's the way the Ran's explanation of that halacha would defend the Rambam's view. But the Ktsos now asks his own question. And this is, interestingly, the only reference to the Ktsos HaChoshen in the entire Chidush Rabbeinu Chaim Alevi, even though, as we've been seeing, especially in the last few pieces, Rab Chaim engages a lot with the same topics that the Ktsos discusses. But this is the only explicit reference. The Ktsos now asks on the Rambam's view from another halacha. The Mishnah in Shvu Islam Edvavam Edbeiz has a case, Anasto Patisa Esbiti. A man claims that another man either raped or seduced his daughter. So he owes him the fines and the damages that the Torah gave to the father. And the other guy denies that he did either of those. So the first man says, I want you to swear. And he swears falsely. So he has to bring a carbon for lying. So in this case, the vow is clearly a Torah vow, even though it has to do with damages to the person. Because one of the things that the rapist or the seducer would have to pay is damages that he damaged the girl. So that's physical damages for what he did to her. So according to the Rambam, that's the equivalent of a case of land because it has to do with the physical damages of a person and there should be no Torah vow. And yet the Mishnah makes clear that that is considered a Torah vow. So this seems to prove the Ravid's view that once the debate moves on from the original issue to a monetary claim, so it's no longer considered an issue of land or people, it's now a regular financial dispute, so there is a Torah vow. But according to the Rambam that the issue doesn't change, it's still considered a land or person issue, even though now the person is claiming money, so there's still no Torah vow, so why in the case of Anastu Piti should there be a Torah vow? So that's the Ktsos' question on the view of the Rambam. Now, Rab Chaim says that this is such a good question that it's actually a question why the Ravid didn't bring this same question. Because the Ravid asked the question from the case where the guy says, you damaged me in two places, and the other guy says, I only damaged you in one place. So the Ravid asks the fact that there's a vow, so we see, unlike the Rambam, that this is not considered about the person, it's now considered about money. But in that same Mishnah, it says a much more fundamental halacha, that if someone says you damaged me and the other guy denies it and swears falsely, so he has to bring a carbon for swearing falsely. Now that carbon certainly only comes for a Torah vow. 
So it's crystal clear in that halacha of the Mishnah that if someone claims that someone damaged them and owes them money and the other guy denies it and swears about that, that is certainly a Torah vow and that explicitly contradicts the Rambam that anything having to do with people or land is not a Torah vow. And here the Mishnah is saying that there's a carbon on that false swearing vow. So clearly it's a Torah vow. So why didn't the Ravid bring a much simpler proof to his view instead of going to the more convoluted and less clear case where someone says you damaged me twice and the other guy says it was only once, why didn't the Ravid go to the much clearer case where someone says you damaged me and the other guy denies it and the Mishnah says that it's a Torah vow because if it was false, he brings a carbon. So that's Rab Chaim's question. Why didn't the Ravid use the same form of question as the Ktsos? So it seems that both the Rambam and the Ravid have a different view of this from the Ktsos. So they're not bothered by his proof. The Ravid thinks he has another proof from the case where the guy says, you damaged me twice, and the other guy says it was only once. But both of them, for some reason, agree that the case of the Karban is not a valid proof to this issue. So Rab Chaim's going to explain what the perspective of the Rambam and the Ravid is that they don't see a proof from the Tzos's case. So Rab Chaim explains that there is a distinction between the obligation to make a vow versus the carbon that comes for a false vow. So even though both of them come from the Torah and the Torah said that neither of them applies to a dispute over land, so on the surface they seem very parallel, but there is a fundamental difference between them in this case where there's a financial dispute arising out of a dispute over land. So the case of the Rambam and the Ravid, where there was a dispute over land and then that transformed into a dispute over money. So according to the Rambam, there is no Torah vow. According to the Ravid, there is. But both of them are going to agree that there is a carbon if he swears falsely. So even though the Rambam holds that this vow is not a Torah vow to begin with, but that doesn't mean that if he swears falsely, he doesn't bring a carbon. In that regard, the Rambam holds that it's enough of a Torah vow that he has to bring a carbon. And the basis for this distinction, Rab Chaim explains, is because why does the Rambam hold that this is not a Torah vow? At this point, they're arguing over money. So even though it began as a dispute over land, but now it's a dispute over money, so why shouldn't it be a Torah vow like any other dispute over money? So the explanation is that the money they're arguing over is just a replacement for the land. It's a stand-in for the dispute over land. So according to the Rambam, even though at this point they're arguing practically over money, but if he were to make a vow, the vow is actually on a dispute over land. What he swears to is an issue that has to do with land. So says the Rambam, even though at this point the other guy's demanding money, but since his vow concerns an issue of land, so there is no Torah vow. So that's the explanation for the Rambam's view that even though they're now arguing over money, but the vow is still considered a vow over land, so it cannot be a Torah vow. But that does not apply to the carbon because the criteria for the 
Karban and the criteria for the Chiyuv Shvua, the obligation, are different. The obligation of the Shvua depends on what the story and the context of this Shvua would be. So it matters where the whole situation began. So since in this case there was a dispute over land and the original case began involving land, so one guy claimed about land, the other guy disputed his claims over land, since the whole thing began with land, so even though at this point now they've progressed and the argument is over the payment, the money for that land, but still in terms of the Shvua, we look at where it began and since it began, over land. So the Rambam holds it's always considered a shvua on land. So it's not a Torah shvua. So that's why the Rambam says we don't look at what they're arguing over now, which is money. We look at where it began, which is land. And since that's the source of this shvua, so the shvua is not a Torah shvua. But when it comes to the carbon, the issue is that this person swore falsely. So they tried to steal money that rightly belonged to the other person. And they made a vast to try to steal it. So the Torah said that they have to bring a sacrifice to atone for that. So the criteria of the carbon is what's happening at the moment the person makes the vow. Was it about land or were they trying to steal money? So since at that moment, this situation had progressed to a dispute over money and when the person made the vow, they were trying to steal money. So that is a Torah vow in terms of the carbon. So even the Rambam is going to agree that with regards to the carbon, we don't look at where it began. We look at what's going on when he made the carbon, what he tried to steal. So even the Rambam agrees that at this point he tried to steal money. So it's a Torah vow for the carbon. And now Rab Chaim adds a second point. It's the same basic approach, but he formulates this even more sharply that when it comes to a vow, there are actually two different components. One is the obligation of the vow and the second is the carbon for a false vow, but they operate totally differently. The obligation of the vow is in response to the claim that the person comes with. So one guy comes and says to the other, you owe me money. So that claim creates under certain conditions an obligation of a vow. So that's why when we're trying to evaluate whether it's a Torah vow, we look at the original claim because the vow is in response to the claim. So if the claim is on land, then it's not going to be a Torah shvua. As opposed to the karban, which comes in response to the action of the false vow. Meaning since this person swore falsely, they committed that sin. So that requires them to bring a sacrifice to atone for it. So the carbon comes in response to something totally differently. It's not the claim, it's the action of the false vow. So that's why we don't look at the original claim, whether it had to do with land or not. We look at what he swore falsely about. Now he swore falsely not to pay money. So again, it's going to be clear that that is a Torah vow in terms of necessitating a carbon. So this is a more fundamental way to formulate this distinction that the vow itself comes about in response to the claim. And in this case, the claim had to do with land. So the Shvua is not the Orisa. But the carbon comes about in response to the false vow. And that was about money. So with regards to the carbon, it was a Torah vow and there is an obligation of a carbon. So even according to the Rambam who holds that this is not a Torah vow, but he agrees that there would be a carbon on a Torah level. So that's why the Ravid doesn't ask from the case 
which is similar to the Ktsos, and that's why neither the Rambam or the Raivid would be convinced by the Ktsos' proof, because in those cases it's talking about a carbon, and both of them agree that in this case there is going to be a carbon. The Raivid is just asking that there's another case which indicates that there's an obligation of a Shvua. So that's a question on the Rambam, that if there's an obligation of a Shvua in a case which started off about physical damages, so the same should be true in the parallel case of a dispute which began over land and is now about money, there should still be a Torah vow. So that's the question the Raivid asks, but according to Rab Chaim, both the Rambam and the Raivid differentiate between the Chiyuv Shvua versus the Karban Shvua, so that undermines the Ktsos' proof. And the question the Raivid asked on the Rambam, so again, that the Ktsos did answer that according to the Rambam, that is only a Shvua Drabanan. But now Rab Chaim asks a contradiction in the Rambam. The Rambam writes in Ochus Nair B'Sula Beis Yud Gimel, Amra lo anasta osivu omer loki elapitisi. She says to him, you raped me. And he says, no, I seduced you. So the difference is going to be whether he has to pay for the pain that she went through. If he forced her, then he does. If she agreed, so then he doesn't. So she's demanding more than he's agreeing to. So this is a classic case where she's demanding more and he's agreeing to some but denying some. So the Rambam rules he has to make a Torah vow that he doesn't owe her the value of the pain but he has to pay the embarrassment and the damages. So the Rambam treats this as a regular since she demanded more than he agreed to so he has to make a vow on the part that he's denying which is the the pain that he caused her. But Rab asks that this contradicts the Rambam that we began with because this is a case of physical damages. So it's something that has to do with a person and the Rambam holds that even if that dispute changes into a financial dispute, there's still no Torah vow. That's what the Rambam rules in Hilchus Toin Venitan. And yet in Hilchus Naira Besula, the Rambam holds that even though it has to do with damage to a person, it still becomes a Torah vow. So Rab Chaim explains that when someone damages someone else, there are five things that they have to pay, two of which are the pain and the embarrassment that they cause them. Now, pain and embarrassment are not reimbursement for what they lost. In other words, the damages is what this person lost. So the person who damaged them has to compensate and reimburse them for the loss. But pain and embarrassment are not things that they had to begin with. It's an extra amount of money that the Torah said that the person has to pay for what they did. So that means when someone damages another person, the payment that they're paying is not actually compensation for the losses and the damages. The Torah obligated them to pay for the fact that they damaged someone else. So that means damaging a person is different than damaging property. When someone damages someone else's property, so they have to compensate them and reimburse them for the loss of that property. So let's say this person had something worth $100 and the person damaged it by $50. So they have to make up the money that they took from them. That's the essential concept of the Torah's law of Nizke Mamon, that if someone damages someone else, they have to replace the property. So the money that they pay them is a replacement for the money that they took from them. So if the damager would not be obligated in the initial money that they damaged, then obviously they wouldn't have to replace it and they wouldn't have to pay for damages. As opposed 
to when someone damages someone else. So this works very differently. It's not that they have to replace the value of what they took from them. It's that the Torah said they have to pay money for the action of damage that they did to this person. So the initial step in that case is that the Torah says that the person has to pay for what they did to this person. And that includes not only the tsar and the boshas, the pain and the embarrassment, where clearly it's not reimbursement or a replacement for what was lost, but says Rab Chaim, even the damages themselves, anytime someone has to pay someone else for what they did to them, so that begins not with replacing what was lost, but that the Torah says that the person needs to pay for having damaged this person. So it begins with the payment. So therefore, even if the initial money is not something that this damager would have been responsible for, it doesn't make a difference. Once they damage this person, they have to cover the damages. And Rab Chaim proves this point from the Rambam himself. In the Rambam rules, If someone damages another man's young daughter, so if it's in a way that's going to cost the father some of the money he could have made, so then the damages go to the father. But the chain nezek if the damages don't cost the father anything, so then the money belongs to the young girl. So we see from this that there is a concept of damages even when the person who was damaged did not go down in value. So there was no loss of actual financial value and still the damager has to pay damages. Likewise, the Rambam writes in Chovalumazik Beis Vav, even if he took off a barley size of skin, so he took off some of the person's skin, he has to pay all five forms of damages because the skin won't grow back the way it was. It becomes scarred or bruised. So that's another example where there's no real damage. He didn't lose value, but still the damager has to pay the money of the damage. So we see that the Torah obligates him to pay damages for the act that he did and not for the loss of value. Says Rab Chaim, it's very clear that when someone is paying damages, even though there was no loss of value, so clearly they're not paying compensation for the damage that they caused, but they're paying what the Torah obligated them to pay because they damaged. So the whole process begins with the Torah's obligation for them to pay damages without considering the cost of what was lost. So that proves Rab Chaim's point that damages to another person are not a replacement for the loss of value, but it's because the Torah obligated the payment of damages. And Rab Chaim says that there's no reason to differentiate between if there's a loss of value or not. So once we see this concept in cases where there was no loss of value, so the same is true even if there was a loss of value, but still the damages that a person pays to another person are because the Torah obligated them to do so. So in that way, it's fundamentally different from regular damages of property where the payment is a replacement for the loss of value. And Rab Chaim adds that even according to the view of the Magid Mishnah in Chovalumazik chapter 2, who says that there does need to be a loss of value for the person to have to pay damages, so he does not hold of this idea Rab Chaim developed that there are damages even without a loss of value. But even according to the Magid Mishnah, says Rab Chaim, the basic conceptual point stands. The Magid Mishnah is just saying that there has to be a loss of value to kick in the payment of damages. 
but the payment itself is not a replacement for the loss of value. It's a payment because the Torah said in such a case, the damager has to pay damages. So according to the Magid Mishnah, the formulation of this idea is a little less sharp. The Magid Mishnah holds there does have to be a loss of value to kick in the payment of damages. But once the payment of damages is there, the way it works is not as a replacement for the loss of value, but because the Torah said that the damager has to pay for what they did. And the reason for that is so that it's parallel with the Tsar and the Boshes, which do not have a loss of value. So according to Rav Chaim, this is the conceptual basis for damage towards someone else. So now that is going to answer the contradiction in the Rambam. The Rambam rules that when there's a dispute over land, even if it evolves into a dispute over money, there is no Torah vow. But that view is limited where there's a dispute over damages to property because the payment in that case is a replacement for the loss of value to the property. So since the land was damaged, therefore the person has to pay for the damages. It's a replacement for that loss of property. So that's why the Rambam holds, even though at this point they're arguing over money, but the basis for the whole dispute remains land. So any vow that's going to be made is as if it's being made over land. So it's not a Torah vow. But that doesn't apply where there's damage to the person. So in the case where she says, Anasta Osi, you physically damaged me. So it's not her property, it's herself. So now the payment that he owes her is not a replacement for the damage to her. It's not to make up the loss of value. It's a separate halacha that the Torah forced him to pay for the act of damaging her. So there, even the Rambam agrees that once the dispute moves beyond the case that it originated with, so it started over the physical damage, but now they're arguing over money. So since that money is not a replacement for the actual damage, the Rambam agrees that any dispute in that case would be a Torah shvua. So the dispute they're having now over the payment is less connected with the way the whole story began that she claims Anasta Osi, even though that claim is what gets the whole thing started. So without the claim, he obviously doesn't owe her money. So the Anasta Osi claim that you physically damaged me is what kicks off the whole claim and gets the whole dispute started. But at this point, the dispute progresses to a financial dispute over money. So it's no longer relevant where it began. We don't consider this a dispute over physical damage. We consider it a regular dispute over money. So since at this point they're having the classic Moda B'Miktsas case, she's demanding a certain amount of money and he's admitting to only part of it. So the Rambam rules that that would be a De'oraisa Shvua. So that now answers the contradiction in the Rambam, even though in Hilchos Toin Vinitan he says that disputes that start over land do not have a Torah vow. That that's because it's over property damages. So the money is a replacement. So there's no Torah vow. But in the case in Hilchus Naira Besula, where she says that he physically damaged her. So since that's a personal physical damage. So there the money is not a replacement for the damages. So the vow that comes about is a Torah Shavua. And very brilliantly, Rab Chaim adds that this whole analysis is also going to answer the Ravid's question. The Ravid asked from the case of physical damages in the 
Mishnah where the person says you damaged me in two places and the other person says it was only in one place. So that seems to be a Torah vow. So says Rab Chaim, now we could answer how that works without using the Ran that it's only a Drabanan Shvua. Even if we follow the view of the Raivid that it's a Shvua de Oraisa, it still makes sense according to the Rambam because the damages there are not on property. They're on the person themselves and the Rambam agrees that when the person themselves were damaged, once the dispute is over money, then it is a Torah Shvua. So the Rambam would agree in that case since it was physical damages that it is a Deoraisa Shvua. The Rambam only meant his halacha when the property was damaged that there is no Deoraisa Shvua, but the Rambam agrees that if there's physical damages or if it's regarding a carbon, it is considered a Torah law. So this is Rab Chaim's very brilliant approach to explain the ruling and the view of the Rambam. According to Rab Chaim, the Rambam differentiates between a carbon versus the obligation of a Shvua, as well as when the damages were done to property versus the person themselves. And the Rambam holds the only time there is no Torah Shvua is when the damages were to the property. There is no obligation of a Shvua. Otherwise, the Rambam agrees that the Shvua is a Torah Shvua. So that answers the various questions that the Ktsos and the Raivit are asking on him, as well as the internal contradiction from Hilchus Naira Besula. The key conceptual points that Rab Chaim develops are, first of all, that the Karban is different from the obligation of the Shvua. The obligation of the Shvua comes about in response to the claim. So we always look at where the claim originated. And even though at issue now, now is money, but since the money is a replacement for the original claim, so we look at the context of the claim. But that's only in terms of the obligation of the Shvua. The carbon is in response to the false vow, and the vow itself is done at the end of the process over what they're arguing about. So when it comes to the carbon, we look at what the vow was on, which is money, so there is an obligation of a carbon. So that's the first distinction. The second key conceptual point Rab Chaim develops is that difference between personal damages versus property damages. And this is a very key conceptual distinction that personal damages are not compensation for the damage. So the payment is not a replacement for the loss of value the way it is in property damages. So when someone damages someone else's property, they are replacing the loss of value. So that's a key conceptual distinction. Now this is a controversial distinction. So the Chazon Ish in his marginal comments on Rab and Rabbi Sir Zalman and the Evan Ha'azel on this piece. So they both question this concept of Rab Chaim and they say that how could there be damages if there's no loss of value? What does that even mean? The definition of damages is that there's a loss of value. So they're following the view of the Magid Mishnah very literally. That damages means there was a loss of value and the person has to compensate the person for their damages. So they don't believe that there is any distinction between personal damages versus property damages. In all cases, the person is replacing the loss of value that they caused. Now, it is true when someone damages someone else, they do have to pay the pain and the embarrassment. So that is incontrovertible 
incontrovertibly not a loss of value. It's something that the Torah said they have to pay, but it's not a replacement for a loss of value. But that's only the Tsar and the Boshas. When it comes to the Nezek that someone pays another person for damaging them, so the Chazonish and Rabbi Zalman see that as a form of compensation for the loss of value. So this is a very fundamental debate between Rab Chaim versus the Chazonish and Rabbi Zalman. Now, Rab Chaim had a proof from the case of someone who damages a girl and there's no loss of value. So the Chazon Ish explains that the word nezek there does not mean damages. It just means broadly that he hurt her. So the word nezek can mean two things. There's the technical meaning of damages that someone caused the loss of value, so they have to pay that amount. And then it can just mean more broadly that someone hurt someone else. So that's the way the Rambam is using it there. And Rabbi Sir Zalman seems to say something similar to that. But the Rambam is not saying that there's a category of nezek without a loss of value. Because again, according to them, that doesn't make sense. The Rambam just means that there is nezek, which means he hurt her without causing a loss of value. So that would be like the pain and the embarrassment. So that's the way they understand that Rambam. Now, Rabbi Sir Zalman also points out that the Rambam himself in Choval Umazik, Aleph Beis, uses the language, Umeshalim hapchas shefchisu midamav, that he pays the loss of value. So the Rambam himself seems to indicate that personal nezek means a loss of value unlike Rab Chaim. So this is a very fundamental discussion. And again, the Magid Mishnah in Choval Umazik Beis Vav, as Rab Chaim himself points out, and the Lechem Mishnah in his discussion there as well, both seem to agree with Rabbi Sir Zalman and the Chazon Ish that there is no Nezek without a loss of value. So that undermines one of Rab Chaim's key points in this piece. Now, the Chazon Ish also seems to question, and Rab Shmuel Rezovsky in his Shi'urim on Bab Metziah Hey Amad Aleph at the end of his discussion of this piece of Rab Chaim, so he also raises this issue, that Rab Chaim says, even if there's only Nezek when there's loss of value, but still the Nezek is not a replacement for the loss of value. So Reb Shmuel wonders about that whole conceptual formulation. How can you derive that from Boshas and Tsa'ar, which are clearly not a replacement because there's no loss of anything, but how can you extrapolate from that to Nezek, which is the payment for damage? Damages for the loss of value. So Rab Chaim doesn't really have a proof anymore for what he's trying to say, and we could easily understand that the damages, the nezek, even for personal physical damage, is a replacement for what the person took from this person. So that would undermine Rab Chaim's whole theory in this piece even more than the first issue that Rabbi Sir Zalman raises. So there is some debate over the whole perspective that Rab Chaim's suggesting. Now, Rab Shach and Ezri asks a similar question which is Rab Chaim asks a contradiction between the Rambam in Toin Vinitan versus Naira Besula. So Rab Shach asks that Naira Besula is talking about also Boshas and Tsa'ar, which are clearly not a replacement for any loss. So it makes sense that the Rambam would say that that's a Torah Shvua because the money in that case is clearly not only a replacement for the physical damages because of the pain and the embarrassment. So how can Rab Chaim ask a contradiction in the Rambam from the the case in Toin Venitan, where the money is a replacement for the damages. So again, Rav Shach is asking from a similar perspective that how can Rav Chaim group together the Nezek and the Boshas and the Tsar all together when they work so differently. So that's some of the discussion around Rav Chaim's overall approach. Now, very interestingly, Rav Chaim's own father, the Beis Halevi, in his tshuvas in Chelek Gimel Simen Mem 
Osbeis deals with exactly this question, and he has a totally different understanding of the Raivet. So he quotes the Raivet's question on the Rambam, then he quotes that the Shach interprets the Raivet's question the way Rab Chaim is, that the Raivet is asking from the case where someone says, you damaged me in two places, and the other guy says it was only in one place. Then he quotes the Urim Vitumim that answers like Rab Chaim quoted, based on the Ran, that this is only a Drabanan Shvua, not the Oraisa. So the whole setup is the same. But then the Beis Halevi disagrees with the Shach and the Urim Vitumim, and he reads the Raivet's question totally differently, that he's not asking from the case where the person says, you damaged me in two places, and it's a Moda B'Miktsas. He's asking from the earlier case where the person says you damaged me and the other person denies it and the Mishnah said there was a carbon. So there it's clear that it is a Torah Shvua. So Rab Chaim asked, why didn't the Ravid ask from that case? And his father, the Beis Halevi, said that that's exactly what the Ravid did mean to ask from, and that's why the Ran is not going to answer the Ravid's question. So very interesting to see how the Beis Halevi views this totally differently. And it's always possible Rab Chaim had some sense of what his father said, so he's responding to it in this piece without mentioning his father, but he disagreed with his father's reading of the Ravid. And we had an earlier recording in the supplement, Hilchus Macholos Asuros, that Rab Chaim would never quote his father and disagree with him. So it could be that's why he doesn't quote his father by name in this piece. But that's a very interesting point. Now, Rab Chaim's son, the Briskarov, in Chidusha Maron Riz Halevi, in the letters at the end of the Sefer, so he references this piece from Rab Chaim and this whole idea that the payment for personal damages is not a replacement. It's that the Torah said the person has to pay. And he explains this nicely. He takes it a step further. He describes it as a kofar. So if someone's animal kills someone, they have to pay the value of the person who was killed because they need to atone for what they indirectly caused. So the Briskarov understands that that's the same concept when someone damages someone else personally, even though they didn't kill them, but there's an atonement that they require. So they damage their hand. The person who damaged them should have their hand hurt. Or if they damage their leg, then the damager should have their leg hurt. So instead, they have to pay. So that's how he describes the obligation to pay the nezek for personal damages, which is even a step further than Rab Chaim, but obviously based on the overall view of Rab Chaim. And others also develop this perspective of the Briskarov, Chidushe Rab Shmuel Rezovsky on Babakama Simon Dalid, and Rab Shach and Aviezri Chovalumazik Dalid Dalid. Now, Rabbi Sir Zalman, in his discussion of this piece, so he mentions that there is another approach from Rab Chaim. So Rab Chaim had another way to explain this Rambam differently than what appears in the Sefer. And in the memorial volume for Rab Chatzkal Abramsky, so they quote from Rab Chaim three different ways to interpret this Rambam. So Rab Chaim had a lot to say about this Rambam, and there are other versions of how he explained the Rambam. Now, just a few quick sources for anyone that wants to take this further. Reb Meir Simchen or Sameach has a long discussion and explanation of this Rambam as well, as does Reb Aaron Cutler in a sefer called Osef Chidushe Torah in Simen Chaf Hey. So he also explains the Rambam. And there's also further discussion of Reb Chaim's perspective on this in Reb Michal Yehuda Lefkowitz's sefer Minchas Yehuda on Babakama at the beginning of the eighth chapter, Pei Gimel Amud Beis, as well as in the Tal Chaim from Reb Chaim Siegel and Simen 
Yudtes, as well as Rab Shaul Brus, who was a close Talmud of Rab Baruch Ber in his Minchas Shaul on Bamitzia Simon Peites. So there's a good amount of discussion about this idea of Rab Chaim that the Nezek for personal damages is not compensation for the loss of value, but it's that the Torah said the person has to pay for the damage that they did.